setting a budget for risk, how to deal with injuries, and what would you pay in 2022 for Jacob deGrum? These are some of the questions we'll tackle, along with a number of key player debates on tonight's show. Fantasy baseball legend Ron Chandler joins us tonight, next on Beat the Shift. Welcome to another episode of the Beat the Shift podcast. I am your host, Ariel Cohen, and with me as always, Ruven Guy. How are you, Ruven? I'm doing great. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good, and a happy Festivus to you. We're actually recording this on Festivus night. You remember that from Seinfeld, right, Ruven? Of course. I remember watching it. I remember watching the feats of strength and the airings of the grievances. That's always fun. And if people don't know what it is, they have to go back and watch Seinfeld. You'll really enjoy it. And the new Mets manager, Buck Showalter, he was on Seinfeld. You remember that? Yes, I think George told him to wear that the players should wear cotton uniforms. I don't think that worked out too well, though. <laughs> well, let's see. I can't wait to see 2022 what the Mets will be wearing. Well, anyways, uh, we got a great show for you today. Uh, we have on uh, pretty much a legend from the fantasy baseball uh, industry, uh, FSWA Hall of Famer. Uh, if you're listening to this show, you certainly know who he is. Welcome to the show, Ron Chandler. How are you, Ron? I'm doing well. How are you guys doing? Thanks for having me on. Oh, our pleasure. And uh, before we start the show, I do have to congratulate you uh, officially on air for uh, winning, for taking me down in uh, in labor. Um, I, I got to tell you, Ron, uh, and you probably had the same, uh, same kind of uh, reaction. The last couple of weeks, it was so back and forth. And especially that last week, I was up on Monday. I was up on Thursday at 3 p.m. I went to the Met game. All right, I'm winning. And, and then that was it. And you popped up. Harrison Bader, two steals in the week. And, and that's how you won. And uh, um, that, that was a crazy finish. And congratulations to you. You, you had a great year. Well, well, thank you. You know, and when when we have leagues that come down to sp- finishes like that, I think in the end, really, whoever ends up winning is 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 mostly random. It comes down to luck. I mean, you, me, and and Jeff Zimmerman, the three of us, really were were jockeying back and forth over the last month, and any one of us could have taken it. I mean, we you got to come away from that season knowing that we all had great years, and the fact that I got those extra stolen bases that last week was. Uh, I mean, it was more luck than anything else. So it was it was gratifying to win. But I mean, we we all had great years that year. Yeah. No. Thanks for that. And but uh, congrats. That was just that was a very fun league. I really enjoyed it, and uh, I, so honored just to be in it. And uh, great to just great to square off with you and Jeff. And uh, um, so much fun. I, I can't wait till next year. Um, all right. Well. Uh, Today's show uh, is going to be called The Healing Episode, and I say this because um, in this year's introduction to uh, The Baseball Forecaster, your introductory title is called Healing, and in it you talk about the outsized increase in injuries across baseball, going through various injury types, and you take stock of the teams that most had injuries and the team had least had injuries, um, and so on and so forth. So the first question to you is, assuming that this level of injury frequency remains in the coming year. What are the takeaways of how we can optimize our fantasy baseball teams in 2022? I mean, does it mean that we should be paying for, we should be paying less for Mets players or teams that have a lot of injuries? I say the Mets because uh, I, I know all about that. Um, should we be avoiding certain injury types? Should we shift the importance of certain scoring statistics? Should we just dis- shift the distribution of our auction dollars and so on and so forth? That's a lot of questions. <laughs> <laughs> Starting you off uh, easy. That's all. Yeah, he really is. I mean, that's uh, <clears throat> it's a, a multiple complex question there. Um, well, what, I guess maybe just start at the basics here. The, I mean, the injuries are really just a key instigator uh, to, a, to a bigger picture. I mean, the fallout, the bigger picture, um, I think that's what we really need to look at. The, the IL, its impact on, on pitching workload management, on, on the management of the bullpens, uh, uh, the need for excessive platooning, uh, you know, combined with the fact that teams are now using the IL just for roster management. Um, it's it's changed really the way we evaluate players as a whole. You know, as as players go down and new ones come up, there there are going to be more and more players to project, 
and you know each one accumulating less and less playing time individually so uh, these smaller samples inherently have higher variance and you know the error bars around projections are going to be wider than ever so so I, for starters i think we, we just can't be as married to the statistical targets or adps as we used to be so i think the approach really has to be to to in order to optimize our teams is uh, i think the focus has to be more on roster construction you know building the best team within the limits of, of what the marketplace gives us you know in draft leagues we have to more and more start thinking several rounds ahead in terms of positions and rough categories making sure that we're the roster is being put together correctly and in auction leagues i I think you need to pay what it takes to get the players that fit your plan with much lesser regard to how the actual numbers add up because we're having less and less of a view of how the numbers actually will add up. So it's, um, I think, more of a a higher level uh, view of of our rosters than than looking at the uh, specific statistics on a player by player basis because they're going to be a lot, it's going to be a lot more volatile, I think. All right. Moving, any uh, response? Do you agree with all of it? I, I do agree, but I wanted to put some context into all this. First of all, last year, 346 position players hit the IL, 489 different pitchers. That's 835 players on the IL. Of those, 207 were due to COVID. That's almost 25% of the IL was either due to COVID or undisclosed reasons. So these numbers will go down. These numbers should decrease as the pandemic, hopefully God willing, decreases as well. Plus, this coming season, we're having a quote-unquote normal offseason followed by a quote-unquote normal season. All this means that everyone's getting back to their regular practice, their regular way that they get ready for the season. And hopefully, this will prevent players from getting hurt more during the course of the season. Plus, in 2020, when the season wasn't a normal season, there were a lot of muscular injuries. I don't think it's going to happen as much this coming year only because there is a normal offseason and stuff like that. So there's things you have to consider. Plus, exactly what Ron said, you have to, you have to construct your, ro your roster the way, you know, certain based on certain players that you pick. Because if you're picking a player who has a quote-unquote pre-existing condition of an injury, you have to, you know, shape your roster differently than if you weren't doing such a thing. Yeah, so... Um, you know, I, I agree mostly with what you said, Ron. I, I don't agree with, um, I, and you probably know this already, I don't agree that uh, you can't really project players and you can't put an importance on that. I think that projections, by and large, are as accurate as they were a few years ago, even with all the injuries. And remember, uh, accuracy of models is never in the whole. It's never in totality. It's always relative to to everything else right it, it, players relative to each other so I, I think that that holds but I do think you're right in that the key is roster construction and having the plan of you know are you going to take steals early are you going to wait for some boring veterans in a certain round corner infielders you don't need two top ones or whatever your plan is um, that is part and parcel of what you need to do I mean in, in an auction I believe that we, we, because of all the injuries, we need to shift even more towards a spread-the-risk approach. I think that the stars and scrubs uh, just increase the volatility, and you're much better off, especially with the hitting side, in going more and more in the middle. And that's actually what you did, Ron, in, in labor. I'm not sure if you're aware of that. I mean, in labor, you had a, a, a top Jose Ramirez for 40, and then almost everybody was in the teams. Uh, mm -hmm. pitchers and hitters, and I, I don't think that's a fluke. I think that's part of, of how you won because you were able to manage a lot of the injuries and a lot of the risk that came across all year. Yeah, that's, that's, absolutely, uh, that's absolutely correct. I'd like to go back to, to one of the questions you asked in that multiple complex question you asked earlier. Sure. <laughs> and you said, does it mean paying less for Mets players at the draft? And I think I did write about in the introduction about how different teams have experienced different injury incidents over the last few years. And I don't know, maybe Reuven can address this. I, I find it fascinating that the Mets accumulated over 4,500 IL days since 2018, while the Orioles had 2,000 fewer IL days since 2018. It's, it just seems to me like a huge difference. Now, you know, we... we we've, there's plenty been written about the issues with the Mets medical staff, but is it really that big of a difference from a, on a team-to-team -team basis? Is it because it's really superior or inferior, inferior medical staffs? Or is it because, I don't know, I mean, the Orioles don't try as hard. They don't have as, they have fewer harder throwers 
for instance, so they just don't get injured as often? I don't know. I'm not a doctor. I really can't talk to this, but I find the reason I wrote about it in the introduction is I find it fascinating. There's just huge variances on a team by team basis. Do, you, do either of you guys know why? I actually think it's because there's a lack of communication or there was a lack of communication between manager, players, and, and basically, quote-unquote, the management and how people deal with these injuries. If a, if a player feels comfortable coming to a manager and saying, I'm, not do, I'm, I'm hurt, I'm not, I can't play, take me out, as opposed to a player who's not as comfortable with the manager or feels like he's forced to go on the field, not forced, but like he feels the obligation to go out there just because everyone else is getting hurt and he needs to stay out there. Like, for example, Pete Alonso played for about a month with a bad hand. His his offensive statistics suffered for that month, and when he sat out and came back, he just exploded. He did really well. But the, I think there may have been this lack of communication between certain managers and coaching staff and with the players. It's interesting. I'm going to venture and say that it has more to do with the composition of teams uh, and the spread of talent. I think that teams that are more concentrated in the elite were probably more exposed. You know, you take a team like San Diego. They had a, a, a supposedly an elite pitching staff going into the year. They got shelled there. The Giants, who were a good team, and again, this has nothing to do whether the team was good overall. The Giants were a team that was very well spread, yet they had few fewer injuries. You know, according to your chart, Ron, mm-hmm. they were towards the bottom. And, you know, I'm counting Brandon Belt. Brandon Belt was a, a superior player, and he had injured. I think it had to do more with the spread of talent than anything else as a general rule. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that, 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 that's my feeling on that one. Um, how does this tie into, or maybe you can say, how, how does your broad assessment balance sheet, uh, the BABS methodology, operate, and how does that help with managing risk for the coming year, you think? Yeah, well, you know, this is this is exactly where Babs wheelhouse is. And, you know, we this is kind of where we we take you and I take different paths on how we evaluate uh, and, and players and, and integrate them into our teams and whatnot. But the Babs, the broad assessment balance sheet is is all is a system that's all about embracing the imprecision of the process. You know, Babs looks at each player as a balance sheet of assets and liabilities, all evaluated in, in pretty broad terms. So. You know, like we'll take a player like Fernando Tatis, say, and show his skills profile alongside his risk factors. You know, we can see his injury risk, and, and, have, and if you want to ding him more because he's on the Padres, you know, you can do that. But it, it's shown separately from his skills. I think the biggest downside with statistical projections is it forces us to make arbitrary decisions about how much time players could potentially lose if they get hurt. So, you know, I asked the question, how many plate appearances do you give to Tatis? You have to take the health of his shoulder into account. So do you discount him by 50 at-bats, 100, more? I mean, you have to pick a number because that, that feeds his projection, but I think it's mostly arbitrary. With Babs, all you need to know is his skills profile and his risk level. The marketplace is what's going to drive his price. So you decide how much risk you want to build onto your roster. Babs uses a risk budget, which... Actually, we're going to quantify this year for the first time. Players are, players are going to have a, a certain number attached to their risk. Then you set your budget and decide how much you want to build it out. You know, let's say your risk budget is, I don't know, let's say it's 30 units for your 23 players, and Tatis has five units of risk. You have to decide if you want to include that level of risk with the first round, the $35 type of player. But, you know, in the end, it comes down to roster management. Again, you know, I don't I don't need to know how many home runs I think Tatis is going to hit. I know he has extreme power skills. I know what his risk factors are. And I know what the marketplace says I'm going to have to pay to get him. With Babs, I don't need to know anything, anything more than that. I just decide whether I want to buy him or not based upon those variables. Yep, and obviously listeners will know that uh, we're here a little bit more precise and, you know, we're giving exact dollar values to players. Um, we are also, just as you, comparing them to the market, you know, to see, you know, if we have uh, players that we think are undervalued, obviously those those depend. And I am glad to hear, by the way, that you're putting some dollar amounts to risk. That's, I, I like numbers there. Um, yeah, but, I know. <laughs> I know <you> do. <laughs> but, you know, my, my, my question on Babs here is that, and, and, and I totally understand it, and, and I, I, I think this is a real great step in the right direction, that, you know, you have to manage risk. It is a component of how you bid. My only critique, and maybe you can answer and address this, is that I'm okay with having a higher risk team as long as I think I'm getting an expected profit 
that's even higher on the player. Like, if my values, and when I have values, I risk adjust also. So if I think Tatis is worth 40, and because of his health issues, risk adjusted, I need to pay only 36 or 35, you know, that's my risk adjusted price. I'm okay with taking a whole batch of risk as long as I continually get an outsized uh, a reduction in the price. Like I, I'm okay with a very risky team. I just have to get a bigger bargains. But if I can't get bigger bargains, I need to take a less risky team. H- how do you address the, the the fact that that is obviously true, right? You you can you can build a teams of different risk levels. Just that you have to adjust prices. Yeah. Well, I mean, you have the risk budget, and you can decide how you're going to spend it. You know, it's you know we we say okay, uh, thirty units is is an optimal amount to spend for risk on your team. If you're spending more than 40 or 45, then you have a team that's too high in risk, and you're probably not going to be able to overcome that with with the skill that you roster onto your team. But what we're also going to be doing with Babs also for the first time is that higher, um, higher tier players, your top players, just by virtue of the fact that they are going to cost you more in the draft, their risk is going to also cost you more. So, you know, player like 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 Jacob Degrom. I mean, he's he's a terrific player. He's a great player, but because of the unknown, because of his risk, you're going to have to add more units to your risk budget in order to roster him. So the risk the risk amount is tiered based upon the the caliber of the player. You know, I'm the type of guy I I won't take a lot of risk in the early rounds, but as we get further down in the draft. I'll load up on risk. I mean, I'll take risky $5 players. I'll take risky $15 players, you know, knowing that there is potential profit there. I just don't see how you can get a whole lot of profit out of taking a risk on a $35 player. Uh, Getting three or $4 worth of profit on a $35 player is great, but I just see that there's much more opportunity to get 10 or $15 of profit out of a $5 player. So that's, that's the tier of players I'm more likely to take risk on. So then I, then, I have a, then I have a question then, Ron. If you had an, an, an irregular uh, snake draft, you had a top five pick, would you discount some of that injury risk from Tatis and not take him in the top five? No, I would not. Because there are other players in the top five who have less risk. I mean, if I've got a top five pick, I'm going Trey Turner. I'm going Jose Ramirez. Um, those are the guys who I'm targeting in the top five. I agree 100%. Uh, I'd rather take Bo Bichette than Fernando Tatis. For absolutely. The absolutely. Uh, 100%. Uh, and, that, and that is absolutely true. And I, I'd, rather, I'd, I'd rather take Acuna also. <laughs> See, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Until I, know, and, until I know his health situation, I wouldn't. I mean... I, in the first round, I'm going after guys who have minimal amount of risk. I'm not taking the chance. Cunha is a little bit different, though, and Ruvain, you, you can help clarify it, but the the injury to his knee is something that has a very high success rate of returning very quickly to the same level of production. Is that right? Yes. If, if he really needed to, six months after injury, he could have played. I mean, Carl Schwarber did that. The only thing is that um, Acuna has a lot of value in his stolen bases. His stolen bases may not come back right away, but it, they, they will be there toward the mid to the end of the season. Right, right. So, yeah. Well, are, you just... paying full, are you paying full value then? If you know that you're going to lose half a season worth of, of prime stolen base output, is he still a top, top five player? He would be. He would be for me. He would be over Tatis because Tatis still has that injury possibility hanging over him, while Acuna is fully healed. We're just waiting to get back to the full one hundred percent. So yes. Well, I, I think that the the value of the steals being knocked down takes him out of the top half of the first round, but the risk element is lower than you think. Right, I, I I think that's where it helps his, him staying higher up for me because I think his risk level is lower. I, I'm more certain of his statistics and his floor than I am for some of the other ones like Tatis, you know. Um, but and by the way, the fact that you say that, um, you know, with with the risk you wouldn't take these guys high up, that just means that the market is completely overpricing risky commodities up top. That that's really it's 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 really a statement on the market for what you're saying here. Yeah, and that's, I mean, and going back to your original question at the, at the top of the show, I mean, it's because of the volatility of, of roles and playing time, uh, it, it just behooves you to play it a little bit more conservative this year. That's what I think. Right. So Babs accounts for a bunch of elements of risk, health, inexperience, uh, things like that. 
Um, one risk that I want to bring up and see how you know maybe you would approach this, how you would think about it. Um, I'll give a semi-real-life example, but let's, let's consider it in the theoretical sense, uh, called binary risk. Um, and we asked this question to Derek Hardy, um, and I, I disagreed with Derek on the show, but I wanted to get your take on this. Suppose you have an unsigned free agent elite closer. Let's call him Kenley Jansen. He's unsigned. And let's assume Kenley Jansen, wherever he goes, we're going to assume is the closer, going to wind up with 30, 35 saves, um, good strikeout rate, and so on and so forth. And you're playing in a 12-team AL-only league, a mono league, so that – we don't know where he's going to sign. If he signs in an AL league, then he's worth $18. Let's say he's a top closer, $18 is what they're worth. Sure. What if he signs in an, L- an NL-only league? Well, he's worth zero. So you're dealing with a completely binary outcome. He's either 18 or zero. And, you know, obviously there's a risk that he's going to get injured, a risk that he's not going to do as well. Let's forget about that for now. Let's just talk about the binary aspect of it. How how would you go about pricing, uh, pricing that? If you just divide it by two, well, that's nine dollars. Would you pay nine dollars for that type of of closer where you don't know where he is, which one? Like, how do you go about pricing that kind of risk? <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm I'm risk averse. I mean, it's uh, you know, my my attitude is is more of a, a logical, pragmatic type of thing. Why even put yourself in that position? And I, I know you're asking the question. I you know they, you know I I see it from the perspective of there are other closers out there. There are lesser risks. I'm not even I'm not even playing that game. But okay, let's let's say for the sake of argument that all the the low risk ale closers are gone and. What are they like six of them? I don't know. And Jansen is up for bid, and he fits my needs. And there he is, eighteen, you know, eighteen dollar value, fifty fifty odds. Yeah, you know, if I'm waiting in that pool, yes, then nine dollars seems to be from a, a, a mathematical perspective makes sense to me logically, but. Ariel, you probably have a more precise formula for that, right? Because I, again, I would not wade in that pool, and you probably know what's the right thing to do. Why don't you just tell me? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, you know what? I mean, the truth of the matter is it's really a market question, right? It's it's a question of, you know, who, what are people going to do? And when I asked this at first pitch, I said, let's uh, everyone raise your hand. Uh, who would bid one dollar for him? I think you would. Bid, I would bid a dollar for that, right? Yeah, who would bid yeah. two? Who would bid three? And once we get to five, you know, the most people put their hands down. Six, most people put their hands down. You know, nine, and still there were a few up. You know, and and you get a sense for the market where it would land. Um, I mean, mathematically, you know, there, there's a you know there's a standard deviation to show what uh, completely binary risk is and it came to about three dollars so he would be worth not nine he would be worth about six dollars and of course i want to make a profit off of that so i would pay four or five at the most that's my mathematical way to do it um but i i, I think the, the the key thing there is the point of, of why i wanted to bring this up is to just let let people know that in theory the long run in the long run the answer is nine Right, if you were playing this and this wasn't a this wasn't a, a one year league, if this was a you know twenty year league and you're going to get that either zero or either eighteen forever and ever, um, the answer is nine. But because we're dealing with one season, where you know you, you you do need you have to you need to make a profit on that risk. There's a risk associated. Like if a company is is operating business, insurance company, they want to make a profit every quarter. So they need to take on a little bit less risky investments because they need to ensure that in every quarter they make a profit, right? You can't just gamble on something that we know in the long term will work out. You do need a discount. So for me, it's $3 is what the math says and take another two for the profit. Um, but I'm just curious, you know, how you would think about that. And I, I don't, I mean, does Babs account for that in any way? How, how would that work? No, I, I, it, it really doesn't get into the weeds like that. But it's interesting that your your calculations come out to three dollars. Basically, what that says is that you're not getting it because, right. right? Yeah, I mean, odds are someone is going to be there who's going to bid four. Someone's going to be there who, who's going to take it up to nine. I mean, it's uh, three dollars is not going to buy him. So that's right. Yeah, and, and I'm I'm basically saying the market is overpricing. Sorry, is underpricing the risk. 
Um, and uh, you know, we'll tie this more into. We'll talk a little bit more, bit uh, more, or more about Jacob Degrom later. But you know, in some ways, he is a binary risk, right? I, I think that nobody really thinks that he's going to be bad. If he pitches, he's going to be spectacular. I think that's a given. Question is, how many innings? So uh, I think that you need to think about what amount of risk you want to consider and how the risk should be priced as in a binary sense for Jacob DeGrom. That's really the way you need to think about pricing him. You know, DeGrom is actually an interesting situation for me because it's it's gotten me thinking about a, uh, a different variable that I don't think a lot of people think about. At least I don't. Uh, I haven't really until recently realized a lot depends upon whether you play in a league with people who are in maybe 10 or 15 other leagues versus those who are in only maybe one or two other leagues. Because those power drafters are going to take more chances on players like the Grom because they want to have at least a few shares of him. And if it doesn't work out, well, they've got eight other leagues that where they don't draft him. But if you're in an, only in a few leagues like I am, you're more likely to play conservative because someone else can take that risk and I typically won't. So if I think a lot depends on the types of people you're drafting with because you know those guys who are in, in 10 other leagues, they'll say, yeah, what the hell, I'll go 35 on the ground. You know, if it doesn't work out, I've got you know, six, 10 other leagues I'm in, you know, that type of thing. That is absolutely correct, and I don't think that's really addressed. And you can definitely see a, dis a difference between home leagues and the NFBC, where every league there's a bunch of power drafters. And up, oh, so I got my Degrom share. That yeah. you're you're one hundred percent true. Yeah. Um. And speaking of you know the NFBC, more than anything, they push up starting pitchers. Oh, by the way, aside from aside from that, you can throw Mondesi into that. Somebody's mm -hmm. gonna take Mondesi, thinking. 60 steals, sure. I got my Mondesi share, no problem. Uh, it works. It works with any of those, you know, uh, any of those short categories as well. Right. Um, you know, NFBC has pushed up and continues to push up the starting pitchers. I mean, um, <laughs> I saw your forecaster release party stream last week, and you were going through all of the uh, starting pitchers in the first round or the top ten, and you showed out every single one of them. Wait a minute. There's a cause concern. There's a wart. Wait a minute. Robbie Ray has never done this kind of level before. Wait a minute. Scherzer is getting old. Hey, Walker Bueller, you think he's safe? Look at his XERA. Uh-uh. Doesn't look great. Um, do you think that the level that NFBC pushes up pitching, and it's it's even driven into a lot of home leagues who are pitching up, push pushing up, push uh, pitching not as much as the NFBC. Um, do you think that level of pushing up is warranted given the risk that that you have clearly shown? No, I mean not at all. But it, this doesn't surprise me, Ariel. I mean this this has been going on forever. I'm I'm not surprised that the market pays large prices for these guys because I mean we're just so heavily influenced by recency bias. I mean those those pitchers who I mentioned, they were all the top earners from last year. I mean it's some great pitchers there, but those were last year's top earners. And just because they had a great year last year, they do have their warts. They do have their baggage. But you can't use last year as a point of reference for for this coming year. I mean, but that's what that's that's what people are doing. Yeah, I've been I've been playing this game and doing projections for over 35 years, and you know, forecasting 101 right there. It says do not project from one season alone. Yet, last year continues to be the point of reference, and it's like an an immovable anchor. So, I mean, I look at I look at last year. There were 11 pitchers drafted in the first two rounds, and seven of them went belly up. You would think we'd learn by now, but we we keep doing the same thing year after year and expecting different results. This year's early ADPs still have, I think, like nine pitchers in the first two rounds. Last time I looked, uh, you know, like I said, I might be willing to go in on 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 a low a low risk pitcher, you know, someone like a Cole or a Woodruff. But I think, and I think there are plenty of interesting pitchers in the middle rounds where we can fish. So no, I'm I'm not going to pay full value for Decrom. Even at, I think he's going 22 right now. You know, Corbin Burns, you know, Gaussman. These guys are going way high based upon last year's performance in labor you know we talked about this I, I i grabbed charlie morton max fried and lance mccullers for like 30 bucks yeah. and you know, that worked out pretty well and there were plenty of pitchers to 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 build a solid roster around you don't need to go so deep on those guys who who just had great years and are are, are far more risky i think
Yeah, I'll, I'll give it to Ruvain in a second, but uh, I, I agree with everything you said. The only thing I'd say, though, is that if you look, and, and not just last year, if you look at the last couple of years in terms of pitchers holding their value, um, yes, only half the pitchers hold their value in the in the first couple of rounds, the ace pitchers, but if you look at the number two, three, four starters, even less of them hold their value at all. The pitchers, the number five, six, seven, they all make money. So the only thing I'd say is that if you don't get that one eighth pitcher, you're playing a game with an even worse target in the middle, and then and then you just won't have enough value to make up in the end. Now labor that we played in just to just to to share that's a twelve that's a twelve team mixed league. One hundred percent, those pitchers at the ten dollar level that you all paid. It's definitely worth it doing that strategy. It's not worth paying at the top um, in a 12-team league. But when you're talking about a little bit deeper, we're talking about a 15-team league, maybe a mono league, I, I, I think there's something to it that the, the, the percentage historically over the last couple of years is so much better in the eighth round than it is in the middle. I kind of think that you might have to take that one dart, even if you miss up top, and then you pick all somewhere in the middle or the bottom because I think there's a value. There's a good chance you might not make up the value if you just pick middle and bottom in those deeper leagues. But do you overpay? Oh, never. I never overpay, for sure not. Um, uh, of course, you know, by overpay, you know, my numbers say a certain thing. All these pitchers are going to be higher than what I think. By what overpay means, if the market is consistently five dollars over my values, I'm okay with paying two dollars over my value. I just I'm not w- paying. Yep. Wouldn't you rather overpay for a top guy than overpay for a middle guy because you have a better chance of you know if, if it's going to be fifty fifty anyway, you have to understand what the construct of your roster is and understand the market. Is there a chance of you being able to roster a thirty five or forty dollar pitcher and still have a, a balanced? Uh, 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 pitching roster, yes, it is, but it makes it a lot harder just because you already had that handcuff, and if that pitcher goes down or goes belly up, then you have a huge problem. I, I think you're better off pay, overpaying for that one starter and hoping he hits because there's a what a forty percent chance, fifty percent chance that he will do well and will return the value. You have to sometimes you, you have to take some risk. You can't go into a drafts or, or an auction thinking. I can't get this guy because he's not going to do what he wants, what I want him to do. You have to trust your numbers, and there's also going to be um, replacement value you're going to get for the for the player also. So you're not going to lose out completely, though. Yeah, I, I think it depends on the format, but you know, just my looking at it says that um, yes, it's inherently risky to take a top one, but I don't know if there's enough value left on average if you ignore that totally in deeper leagues. In shallow leagues, there's no reason to pay anything high. You can get so let me let me let me ask you let me ask you guys a question, okay? If you have the choice of getting these two pitchers at your projected value, Jacob Degrom or Brandon Woodruff, which one would you go after? Woodruff, Degrom. Really? I go Degrom. I'll go I'll go Degrom because he first of all. Um, he's saying he's okay. I mean, how much do you go by that, but whatever. But based on what he can do, he was the number one or close to the number one fantasy player in baseball for half a season. If he can give you half a season and you get a replacement level value for the rest of the half, you may, you may be able to make that up. Well, you're taking a perspective, Ruvain, that he's very highly guaranteed half a season. If that's the case, I would say DeGrom. But uh, I don't think that's the case. I think he's quite more But if, But if you don't think he's going to be a, a half-a-season pitcher, then you have to put that into your projections and say that, okay, you know what? He's not going to get those amount of innings, so you can't project him that high. I think it's more binary. Well, what are your thoughts, Ron? No, I mean, it's it's it's, it's to me, it's it's, it's a risk-reward uh, question, you know, completely. It's, you know, Woodruff has, has shown that he can put in the innings and, and be the guy who, who will – uh, produce what you expect them to produce, and it's 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 a low risk proposition with him. Whereas you're taking a, a big risk with with Degrom, and I mean, if if you know that he is going to give you the same type of half season that he gave last year, sure. I mean, but again, it's it's a question. Woodruff, you know, is going to give you 180 innings, 200 innings. With Degrom, you just don't know. And if you're going to invest 25 or 30 dollars on a pitcher. At that level, you 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 want to have something that's more of a sure thing. That's that's the way I play it. Yep, I agree completely with that, uh, uh, Ron. Uh, that, that's absolutely the way to think about it. Um, question on saves now. Let's go to saves. Um, 
saves, if you're looking at the ADPs now, are record-level uh, low rounds. And it, it's crazy that it's this way, and we're only in the month of December. Usually what happens is saves actually get pushed a little bit lower, and then as we get closer to the season in January and February and March, the closers creep up as we know more rules. But they are going crazy high. I mean, I, I saw a draft where Liam Hendricks went in the start of the second round. Um, I, I saw one draft where third round, boom, 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 closers were going. Um, I mean, is the market right on this? I mean, we know saves are more volatile than ever. Of course, the elite ones are more important than ever. Is it, are we right at all? Is the, I should say, is the market right at all in this? It, because, because the market's playing, is paying the prices, should we then have to pay it because we need saves? What, what are your thoughts? Yeah, the market is freaking insane. <laughs> They're just crazy. This yeah. is crazy stuff. I mean, first of all, <laughs> it's tough to justify paying or overpaying for a one category player. I mean, it's really what you're talking about there. I, I, I think it makes more sense to accept the risk in the middle and later rounds and, and, and hope to use the free agent pool during the season. I mean, that's the way you have to play saves these days. <clears throat> yeah, I, this is the question I ask myself. Do you want to pay $20 for a pitcher with 30% risk of failure or $10 for a pitcher with 50% risk of failure? I'd rather put those 10 extra dollars to better use of the draft where I control what I spend it on than, than, than spending it for uh, a pitcher with a higher risk of failure. Again, it's a, a risk reward type of thing. So, you know, for 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 my dollars, you know, I'll, I'm investing my pennies in, in guys like you know, maybe Ken Giles, uh, Taylor Rogers, you know, I'll, I'll have some shares of Lucas Sims, depending upon how the rosters shake out this spring. But, um, but also, and I have to say this, I'm, I've been in for the last few years on the saves plus hold soapbox. So if we can open up the player pool to more players who have real baseball value, that, that lessens the volatility, volatility of using saves alone. But, um, yeah, that the, these current ADPs for closers is just nonsense. That's crazy. Yeah, and that's a whole other discussion whether we really need to change this category. And you can throw yeah. wins as well. Wins with the you can throw. You can, there's a lot of things to talk about that. Uh, but Ruvain, what yeah. are your thoughts on the saves? Yeah, I just want to add to what Ron said. I'm going to go a step further and say I'd rather have quantity over quality and just try to bunch up and try to get as many potential or possible closes on the roster because. If they're not going to close, a lot of these guys are using high leverage situations. They're going to still get a lot of wins. I mean, I think the leader for the Mets in wins last year was Jerry Familia. Okay, he had like <laughs> nine or ten wins. So yeah. these middle relief guys, if they're not closing right away, they may end up closing and or they'll get more wins just because they're putting in a high leverage situation. So what you may not get in saves, you may get in another category, and you may be able to fill other categories that way. Yeah, I, I agree a lot with, with what Ron said, that at this price, it's just crazy. Um, I think you're better off throwing four darts that add up to uh, the same amount as one than uh, to spend a second-round pick on uh, Liam Hendricks. And although um, he seems pretty much the sure thing, <laughs> he's a closer. It's one category. How much can that influence your roster? Uh, that's kind of crazy. I, I think that the values are totally out of whack from what I'm seeing, and yeah. I, won't know, I won't know part of that. Um, so at prospects, um, you know, the, the question is how do we value them? Projections come out, and sometimes projections show them as, wow, this guy looks incredible. I mean, Bobby Witt Jr., to give you an example, he's projected by Steamer with a two sixty seven batting average, 24 homers, and 18 stolen bases, 114 WRC+. I mean, that's a phenomenal player, uh, if that's true, but... You know, history has shown that prospects don't always hit the ground running, um, and there's a huge risk. Sometimes they do. I mean, look at Vladimir Guerrero Jr. His first two years were eh. Um, certainly whoever paid the fourth, third, third, fourth, fifth round value were completely disappointed the first year, even though he looks like to be a legitimate player now. What What is your take on prospects in general on, on how they're valued? Well, you know, well, first of all, it depends upon the depth of the league you're playing in. You know, in AL or NL-only league, uh, they have to be a key part of your plan. But, I mean, in a 10- or 12-team mixed league, you, you may not even need to consider them at all. Talent pool is so deep in those leagues that it, it might not even make sense to take on the added risk when there are so many proven players available. But, you know, assuming you do need to consider them, I, I, I like to look more at context than skill because – we, we just don't know how quickly these prospects are going to adjust to the majors. 
The wit, though, oh, <laughs> Bobby Witt is tough not to like. <laughs> I tell you, I mean, you know, power, speed. Uh, you know, the thing that impressed me the most was uh, yeah, absolutely no erosion of skills moving from Double A AA to Triple A last year. And I mean, on Kansas City's got got path to playing time. Uh, you know, one of the risk factors that Babs considers is major league experience. So, it, so he does get dinged with that, but that's a risk I think I'd build into my budget easily. You know, baseball HQ has them at, um, I think they have them at $17 at their projection. Um, for what it's worth, I think this is a level of player where I'm probably more comfortable taking on the risk because, uh, man, <laughs> he's pretty exciting. I think I think he's special. Yeah, moving. What, what do you think? Uh, I mean, the guy steals a lot, which that usually translates well into the majors. He's got a 40% fly ball rate, which is pretty high. 20% homer to fly ball rate. It's tough to see that not a lot of that will decline, right? I mean, that those are pretty substantial to say that he has, he has a good chance of sticking. What do you think? Yeah, but his ADP right now is a little bit too high for my own liking right now. I mean, he's around like 93 right now. That's a, ahead of Trevor Rogers, Cody Bellinger, Christian Yelich, uh, DJ LeMahieu, Austin Meadows, all these guys are being drafted after. I think at that level, you still want to get some value there. You want to make sure you get a, a known quantity. So I, I, I really like Bobby Witt, and I think he's going to be great. But when is he coming up? He's not going to come up probably until the end of April. So you're going to miss him. You're going to, he's going to miss some time that way. And is he going to hit the ground running? If he is, then you have a full-time player who's hitting all the projections. But if you, if he doesn't hit the ground running, then you're going to ready fall behind the eight ball for like a month or two. And you could have had these other players. How do you like? How, how do you like uh, HQ's projection of seventeen dollars? Would you, if he's bid up to seventeen dollars? I mean, you taking him there, or you think that's too expensive? For for me, that's too expensive. I don't want to spend that much money on a quote unquote prospect or risk. Um, I would prefer to put that money into a known quantity. More, uh, you know, better off. I think. Mm-hmm. Doesn't okay. doesn't sound ridiculously uh, off though. I think the seventeen is going to be close, a little bit on the high side for me. Although the market is actually higher, I mean the market is closer to twenty. Um, it's not terribly not. I mean if he drops to uh, for thirteen, fourteen, fifteen dollars, I think I would take that risk there. I mean, how, how do you consider, or how does Babs consider even um, the inexperienced risk compared to I don't know Yelich or Bellinger? We'll talk about th- those two guys uh, in a little while. You know, how do you compare those different risks? Which one is more risky for you? Well, I mean, prospects inherently are more risky, and and um, Babs significantly discounts uh, the ratings on prospects. We do do major league equivalency ratings using Babs to get an idea of what the potential might be using their minor league stats. But you know, it's more of a balancing type of process. You know, their minor league potential versus what they're likely to do in the majors, and and it Babs will will undervalue most 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 prospects. Right. All right, we're going to do a little bit of player debates uh, here in the offseason before the ATC projections are released. We're going to talk about uh, yeah, just a couple of different player debates. Here's a couple that we've done on the show a little bit. We wanted to get your take, starting with, and I think I already know what your answer is going to be, Vlad Jr. or Bo Bichette. I think you're going Bo Bichette here, right? <laughs> you know, they're both $30 first-round players. And, you know, in, in an auction, I'd probably only roster one of them um, because I, I don't like rostering multiple high-priced players from a single major league team. You know, if the Blue Jays tanked, then probably would affect both of them. Um, but I, I think it comes down to roster construction. If you need to build in speed early, you take Bichette, probably play a slight premium. If you already have a speed foundation or you plan to roster it later, then, then Vlad. You know, I personally don't see a big enough difference between the two that I'd have to make a choice for any other reason. Um, but yeah, Bichette, I'd get to give the edge over Vlad just from the stolen bases alone. Right, and if you're in, if you're in a draft, in a snake draft, not an auction, I think you would go Bichette if you, you know if both are available at the number six pick. You would go Bichette. Yeah, definitely Bichette yeah. over Vlad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, moving. I completely agree. You had the stolen bases to get those stolen bases in the first two or three rounds is almost. You need you, you must do that. So how can you how can you pass by those twenty five possible stolen bases and impossible twenty five home runs and a three and a close to a three hundred average? Yes, you get all those wonderful home runs from from Vlad Jr. But just like Todd Zola said, all those home runs that he hits so far, they still only count as one. So just because he hits all of them, you can still put your roster together with other home run hitters, but the stolen base guys are much harder to find. 
Yeah, the other, the other two things I'll just point out why it's Bichette for me is, number one, in, a, in roster construction, I think there's a lot of corner infielders later on that I might think are undervalued versus the middle infielders. So for that reason, if I had a choice, if they were the same value, I would give the edge to the shortstop, being that I can grab uh, a better-priced corner infielder later. I won't have that opportunity with the middle. That's one reason. Uh, and from the ATC intra-projectional volatility metric, uh, Bichette is less risky in terms of categorical risk, right? Vlad is missing the stolen base component. So if you're starting in a vacuum and you want to build a balanced roster, it's much easier to get there from Bichette than from Vlad, right? It's just easier to balance out as you go if you get Bichette to start, right? It's all about roster construction. Uh, let's do Mike Trout versus Teoscar Hernandez versus Luis Robert. Let's say you, Ron. Hmm. Um, well, again, my general rule of, rule of thumb is is to uh, low risk tolerance for players who are twenty dollars or more, or in the top, basically four rounds of snake drafts. So, um, as much as all these three guys are in that pool and have somewhat different skill sets, I, I have to go with Teoscar as the lowest risk profile for me. So, I, I would choose him. <laughs> um, however, however, and I'll just make this point: one thing Babs does is is group players with comparable skills profiles together and sorts them by market value. So as, so as much as I, I choose Teoscar from this, this group, um, there are a bunch of other players with comparable skills who I could wait on and get for lesser cost. So, uh, you know, guys like, oh, Matt Olson, Pete Alonzo, um, even CJ Cron has similar upside. The, the only reason that Teoscar is going earlier than those guys is because he, he flirted with a 300 average last year, but his, I don't think his underlying skills really support that as being sustainable. Um, anyway, that, off on a tangent, I, I would take Teoscar as, as much as it pains me, given that Mike Trout was always a go-to. Um, he seems to me to be a, the least risky at that uh, price point. Yeah, he also steals. He had 12 steals last year, and I think that a lot of that is real. Um, I'm going to name uh, Teoscar Hernandez last year, 296, 32 homers, 116 RBI, 12 stolen bases. Uh, let's see if you can get this, Ron. In 2019, there was a player who hit 282, 34 homers, 110 RBIs with 12 steals. Can you name that guy? And what, what did he bat? 282. 282. I don't know who was that. Juan Soto. Yeah. These are very high skills. I mean, he finished, yeah. you know, the top yeah. five, six players this year. He, yeah. was, he was enormous. Uh, Ruvain? Yeah, I'd actually rank them as Teoscar first, then Robert, then Trout. Because right now, Teoscar is going the beginning of the third round, end of second, beginning of the third round. They're going to pick 34. And Trout is going around 15. Robert, at least Robert, is going around 19. Robert mm. still gets you stolen bases. Trout doesn't steal anymore. So, again, I'm still looking at that spot. I'm still looking for stolen bases. That's why Robert goes ahead of Trout. And Teoscar, you just you just comped him to Juan Soto. How can I not want a Juan Soto type for in the, in, in, at the 34th pick? I would rather, you know, maybe get a starting pitcher earlier or, or power, you know, get another batting average guy there or another stolen base guy. So if I can double up, I'll have my stolen bases in the first two or three picks and I'm good. I think the answer matters if, if you go to an OBP league. I think that Trout, because he's so much better, um, yeah. that really changes my thing. I think Trout would be a no-brainer here. Uh, but for me, um, I'm not really interested in Trout with the 16th pick of a draft. Um, I, I just can't see the risk uh, and, and the lack of steals to, to warrant him. And, yes, he's Mike Trout, but— you know, we play this game. We know that names are just names, um, and you have to go by what the we think the numbers are going forward. All right, uh, next one, Christian Yelich or Cody Bellinger. But first, we've got the Injury Gurus Trivia of the Week. So we're going to be talking now about Yelich and Bellinger, both of whom have been on the IL, and both of them have some risk coming into the 2022 season. Yelich, remember, ended his season in 2019 when he had a, a fractured kneecap, went into the offseason with an injury, and Cody Ballinger had the shoulder injury after the 2020 season when he injured his shoulder celebrating. So my question to you, Ron, is this. Let's see if you can get this. Who has played more games over the past three years? That's 2019, 2020, and 2021. Was it Christian Yelich or Cody Bellinger? Hmm. Um, I'd say Bellinger. Ariel? 
Yeah, I would say Bellinger also. Bellinger played 307 games. Yelich played 305 games. <laughs> so it's so similar. They both missed about 20% of the games over the past three years. And we actually had a mailbag question um, that uh, Ricky sent in saying, how do you view Cody Bellinger next season and, and beyond? I think Bellinger is going to be much better than Yelich. This is the reason behind this. Bellinger is going to be one full year removed from the shoulder surgery. He was extremely unlucky last year. His Babbitt was under 200. But you'll see a wart for him. His hard hit percentage or his hard hit average has gone down 20% since 2019. That may have to do with health. That may have to do with that he maybe altered his swing. Yelich has more of a chronic back issue. This is more of a thing that can flare up at any time. And, you know, his batting averages has, has dropped. His power is just not there anymore. He's also older than Bellinger. Bellinger, I think, is four years or five, four and a half years younger than than Yelich, which gives him the advantage also. So I think in this in this vacuum, I would definitely take Bellinger over Yelich. Ron? Well, you know, if the Dodgers gave him a $900,000 range after he batted 160, so they must know something, right? <laughs> um, yeah, it, it's it's Bellinger for me. I, I just, uh, there's just more upside there, I think. And, and uh, yeah, for all those reasons that you mentioned. Yeah, they're both going in the seventh round, very close to each other in ADP. But I, I think, I think, I mean, the answer is Bellinger for me, but I think it's a hard pass for both of them. I mean, there are guys going later Fran Mil Reyes, Anthony Rendon, Kyle Schwarber, Brian Reynolds is going right around there. There's so many other people with similar skills, with some upside and some more batting average stability. And I, I don't have a reason to embrace the risk. Uh, at this point for either of them. And I rely on you, uh, Ruvain, for the medical uh, information. And Yelich, to me, is a hard zero. Bellinger, to me, is a risk of whether he's healthy or not. And, of course, we'll see what he does in spring training. But I think it's a pass per, per ADP here. Yes, plus it's also harder this year because we're not hearing anything from the players in the offseason. So we're not knowing how their rehab or their offseason is going, except unless, unless you want to see North Syndergaard without a shirt on. But that doesn't really help us here. So, you know, it's really hard to find out how how players are coming back from injury. And that's going to be one of the biggest tricks in this coming season. Can I just make a quick point? It's another reason why we really can't trust what the current ATPs are saying, because they're based on so much less information that we normally get this time of year. And we will get over the next month or two. So uh, it, it's really hard to trust them as accurate market values, you know, going back to our conversation about closers going so high and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no doubt. Um, well, let's do two more player debates. Uh, I want to get to this one. So, um, relief pitchers, who would you rather take? Greg Soto, David Bednar, Camille Duvall? It's, uh, it's about context. I mean, with, with this comparison, um, taking a look at all three. Well, you know, the Giants will presumably have the most save opportunities, but, you know, they have Jake McGee and uh, Tyler Rogers siphoning off saves from Duvall. Detroit has Fulmer in the saves mix, so there's not as clear a path for Soto. Um, you know, I, I like Bednar. Pirates are probably going to have the fewest save ops, but I think Bednar has the best skills of the three. I don't see Chris Stratton as much of a threat, so I, 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 I'd probably pick Bednar here. Ruby? I actually agree with that. Um, Gregory Soto, the Tigers are actually signing free agents because they think they have a chance in the, in the weak AL Central. So if Soto stumbles at all in the first couple of weeks, he may lose his job very quickly. Camilo Duval, he's almost like a closer by committee there. He's not going to get all the saves, but Bednar, I think, will get the saves. Even though he had three saves last year, he was the closer in AA in, San, in the San Diego system. He was a closer in AA, so he has a history of it, and I think he'll thrive as a closer, although, like Ron said, he's not going to get that many save opportunities. Yeah, this is a tricky one. Um, there's definitely doubt on all three in terms of uh, what they're going to get in terms of saves, and I think the answer also depends on the format you're on. Um, if you're in a regular league that has waiver wires, um, you know, they announced that Soto was the closer. I'm, I, I had lunch this week with uh, Frank Stample of CBS, and he says that he thinks that the manager was just saying – oh, he's the closer just to get reporters off his back, and everyone took that as, oh, he's the closer? Great. Yippee-i-yay. Um, so I, Soto's skills are weaker than the other two. Um, I think it's very, very possible that he starts walking everybody, he starts giving up runs. Soto's pulled really, really quickly. That said, you know, 
what I tend to do early in the season, especially in shallower leagues, you take the guy who actually has the role right now. David Bednar, I don't know if he's ever going to get the role fully. I mean, after they, they traded their closer away, Pittsburgh, last year in the middle of the year, we would think, okay, great, Bednar, he's the guy. He was not the guy. Chris Stratton was the guy. I don't think they want to give it to Bednar. I think they want to have Bednar only in high leverage roles. So they might try other people un- until then and then trade them uh, in the middle of the year if they stink. So from a safe standpoint, and that's what you need, I think I would not want to have Bednar. I'd rather have Soto and Duvall somewhere in the middle. It's unclear what his role is right now. If I'm in, if I'm in a D.C. league, a draft champions league, where there is no waiver wire and I can't pick up people, I think the answer is the other way. I think Bednar has the higher skills, does have a chance of saving. I think I'd rather have him first because of his skills. And, you know, if I don't like the starter in a week, I'll just throw Bednar in. I'm not throwing Soto in if I don't like the starter. So I would actually say in a league where you can't pick up regularly off the waiver wire, deeper, deeper leagues and draft champion leagues, I would pick Soto much later than Bednar. Does that make sense? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's, but you know, it's there's so much speculation going on this, this time of year. It, it's, we really don't know what the teams are, are planning for the bullpen. So uh, yeah, I mean, it, it makes perfect sense. Yeah, I don't think we know what the teams are planning for the bullpen even in the middle of the year. I think uh, yeah, we're at that really. stage. Uh, what are the Rays doing? <laughs> I mean, uh, you know. They're, they're I, doing what they always do. They use everybody in, in every situation, so they're prepared for everybody. And they have whole, all of them are high-leverage situations because they all pitch in the 6th, 7th, 8th, and ninth inning anyway. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, it's very, very tough. Uh, you know, the Reds announced before the season last year that they're not going to have a uh, set closer. And by the end of the year, that was true. Um who knows? Uh, I think it matters this year. More than just looking at your closer chart, who is the guy, I think you need to put a new column into whatever you're tracking for saves in terms of how our team's going to operate. For the Mets, we're going to give it to one guy. For the Rays, we're going to give nobody more than four saves. For a certain team, we're going to try this guy, and we'll go off him if he stinks very quickly. Like I think you need to know the context, and Keeping track team by team of what the context is and what we think their plan is, I think that actually is important to, to figure out before the season. That, that's my advice there. Last one, Jacob DeGrum or Luis Castillo? We already did DeGrum versus Woodruff, but how about Luis Castillo? And I mentioned Castillo is going much later. DeGrum is ADP of 22. Castillo is all the way at 76. Last year, Castillo was going in the second round, and, you know, he had – a pretty bad year. He had a three three nine eight ERA, 1-3-6 whip, only had eight wins. Good strikeouts, though. Um, but if you look at his splits, April-May, he had a seven two two ERA, one seven eight whip. But from June 1st and on, a two seven three ERA, that's what we had him for. So do we buy that something was just off early on and Castillo really is highly undervalued this year and much less risky than Jacob DeGrom? What do you think, Ron? Yes. <laughs> yeah yeah i mean absolutely i mean it's i mean you encapsulated it right there the 273 era from june on last year is it's clearly whatever was going on in the first two months of the year he was able to correct and he was you know vintage castillo for the rest of the season um so yeah i uh the choice between the two it's, it's a no-brainer for me I, I i would go with castillo the met fan doesn't like the grum all right Ruve. Yeah, well, um, I, I like DeGrom here, and I like DeGrom before, but that's because I think if he even pitches half a season, he'll be better and, can, and, can, and could accumulate more stats than Castillo can in three quarters of a season. So the hope is that DeGrom stays healthy. But some numbers on Castillo. I did some digging here, and you mentioned the second half. In the second half of the season last year, 3.18 ERA, 96 strikeouts in 85 innings. But I did some. I look did an even deeper digging here. He gave up nine unearned runs in the first half and only two unearned runs in the entire second half. I think the Reds were playing with their defense, and I think he had bad defense behind them. And and we we knew everyone was playing out of position there. And I think that affected the way he was. That's affected one of the reasons why he just didn't do that well and why his ERA was so bloated like it was. I just think he had a lot of bad luck, and I think Castillo can be a number one. I think he's worth it at the 75th pick, 100%. I, I take him there 100%. But would I pass DeGrom at 22? Uh, it's, it's very hard for me to do. Now, I agree fully with Ron here. I, I, I think Luis Castillo is completely mispriced by the market. Uh, he's, he's, he's Right now, if I've drafted today, I'm going to see some Luis Castillo on my teams here. No, um, me too. 
Yeah. We'll do, uh, uh-oh, are we in the same league again this year? <laughs> uh-oh. Uh, <laughs> mailbag, we'll do one. We had a couple questions that we sprinkled uh, in uh, with th- within this episode, but uh, here's one interesting one. Um, Brad asks, should league have leagues have rules to account for suspended players? It's a thorny issue, but it seems like having some rules are better than having no rules. Ron, should we have some suspended player rules? Well, I mean, it, it's really up to the league how they want to handle it. I mean, there are a lot of leagues that handle suspended players just like injured players, and and you decide what makes sense. It's not like this is a a real prevalent problem where we're talking about you know just a handful of players each season. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I guess my line of thinking is that any time uh, a player is uh, is taken out of play for for a reason beyond your control, that's something that you have no control over, you shouldn't be penalized for it. So there should be a rule to to account for those. Yeah, I agree. I think that if you really want to be really fun, if you're playing in a points league, make suspensions minus 15. Why not? Ruve? Why not just add an extra IL spot and make them eligible for the IL then if, if you're going to do that? Because I, I don't think anything should be done for that. If you have a player and let's say he gets suspended for steroids and he misses 50 games... You know what? You probably would drop that player anyway, if, depending on what part of the season it is and everything like that. If you had Trevor Bauer last year, you held on to him and hoping he would come back up until a certain point. That's just like an injured player. If you're going to have a an, an special rule for, for, a, for a player that's suspended or something like that, then just have him be eligible for the IL then. Yeah. I would say um, it's it's just like Ron. It's up to you. If I had to pick something, I would say uh, make him an unpickable, uh, unpickable upple, or whatever you want to call it. But meaning, if you release a suspended player, they're done for the year, and nobody else can pick him up off the waiver wire. I think that's sort of unfair to you know have the risk of of that suspended player, and uh, do I have to pick him up in the end? Maybe that's a way to counteract, but I, there's no there's no right answer here. It's really what whatever you like to do. Um, you know, you can have weekly lineups, you can have daily lineups, whatever you think helps uh, helps you and your own purposes. Ruben, do you have any injury updates? Yes, I do. I got a couple injury updates here. Uh, we'll start with Lance McCullers. Um, he will actually begin throwing in about a month. Toward uh, toward the beginning of January, he should start throwing. He was unable to pitch in the ALCS in the World Series because of some forearm tightness. His most recent MRI came back clean, but it's just worth monitoring McCullers if you hear anything about him throwing before spring training and during spring training. Austin Hayes, he's recovering from core muscle surgery. He had the procedure done in November. He's expected to be ready for spring training. Charlie Morton fractured his leg during the World Series. He's currently, he was out of his cast and he was in a walking boot. Now he's off of that and he's just beginning weight-bearing exercises. And hopefully he will be able to bring his rehab to the next step. At this stage right now, Morton appears ready to be ready to start spring training at full strength. So we'll see how that works out. Yanni Chirinos suffered a setback when he was rehabbing. He fractured his elbow. Um, didn't affect his Tommy John surgery that he had back in August of 2020, but he won't begin his rehab until late April at the earliest. So don't cons- I wouldn't consider Yanni Chirinos drafting in any, in any uh, leagues at this point. And one other, Nate Pearson. He had or a surger- surgery to repair a sports hernia. He should be fine for spring training. He's according to the uh, Blue Jays general manager. So if you want to take a risk on him late rounds, he's, he should be good to go. Yeah, talk about high-risk prospects with Nate Pearson. My goodness. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think, I think we had him in a couple leagues last year, and that didn't work out too well. Uh, we think we had him in two leagues, and yeah, yeah, that that was risks that uh, we did not uh, hit on. Uh, we was in the NFBC. We took our shots. He was only three dollars, so uh, and I think that was the worst thing. And he didn't sit on our, on our team for all that long. All right. Well, anyways, uh, that's the end of the show. Um, Ron, this was a great one. I think we touched on a lot of great topics. I think we saw a lot of differences between each other, similarities between our thinkings, and uh, I think a great show for the listeners. Thank you for coming on. And also, can you, uh, before you go, could you plug anything uh, uh, that you have, uh, where we can see your stuff, uh, and so on and so forth? Sure, sure, sure. Uh, thanks for having me again. Uh, uh, my home base is, is still my website, ronshander.com, uh, where there links to wherever I am at that particular time. You know, the baseball forecaster is now out. You can order that through uh, baseballhq.com. 
Uh, BabsBaseball.com is uh, where I've been doing a lot of work on, on the Babs system, and we'll be gearing up uh, to start at the end of uh, January, whether there's baseball or not. And finally, um, I started a uh, COVID project a couple of years ago, writing a, an historical memoir about the uh, history of fantasy baseball. And I'm hoping to have that out by the end of 2022. So uh, I will have details and excerpts and things along those lines at uh, ronchandler.com with updates on how that's going. So uh, yeah, keeping my fingers in a lot of different pies right now. Awesome. Uh, well, definitely looking forward to that. And yes, get your copy of The Forecaster. Um, you know, uh, the first time I got The Forecaster and I picked myself up and went to a first pitch, I think it was Boston, uh, I, I had you sign it. And actually, I, I had I, I had I asked you to sign uh, my copy uh, no, I don't know, for a couple of years in a row until I started playing you in the league. I, I, I think that was too much already then. <laughs> uh, but uh, no, it was just, just a great book. Uh, definitely. Uh, and those of you who listen probably already have the book. But if you if you have not gotten it, uh, please uh, get that and uh, follow uh, Ron uh, with uh, the Babs. And uh, yeah, we're looking forward to the memoir. Ruvain? You can follow me on Twitter at MLB Injury Guru, where in a couple of weeks I'm going, to be, I'm going to be tweeting out injury updates for all the players to help you get ready for your drafts. And I'm also going to have a weekly article during season on Rotobuller. All right, I'm Ariel Cohen. You can read my work over at Fangraphs, at CBS Sportsline, over at Rotoballer. Um, the ATC projections will be up on all three sites in less than a month from now. Uh, ATC Day is always the third week in January on a Thursday. Uh, don't ask me why, but uh, that's when we publish them. Uh, so look out for those. Of course, you can follow me on Twitter at ATCNY, and you can listen to me right here on the show each week on the Fangraphs Beat the Shift podcast. Once again, thank you so much to Ron Chandler for coming on the show, and from all of us here at Beat the Shift, we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Beat the Shift podcast presented by Fangress. Follow us on Twitter at beat underscore shift underscore pod.